This week, every week when I am confronted with what to do, I would say, Lord, what do you want me to preach about? And I've told you before that God will reveal to you what he wants you to say in your private time with him. And so I want to introduce you to a message I entitled, Poured Out. Poured Out. I'm going to read the scripture, then I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask the Lord to pour into us so that we can pour out. Let me pray first. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. It does matter to us. And we thank you that it does matter to our master. Send your holy angels now to surround us and your Holy Spirit to fill us. That what is proclaimed from this pulpit today will be stamped with the approval of heaven. And that souls will be pointed into the direction where they can experience the blessing of being poured out. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. In the book of John, we read these words in John chapter 4 and verse 7. If you have your Bibles, you can join me. If not, it is on the screen. Small but profound. I have read the story of the woman at the well, and some of you know it before you even turn to it. You even call it the woman at the well. But this proposal to the woman at the well this week took on a completely different meaning to me, Karen. God revealed to me something that for years I had never seen. And I want to share that with you today. Let us look at the words of Jesus in John 4 and verse 7. A woman of Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. You know, Jesus propositioned the woman to do something that he could have done for himself. So I asked myself the question, why would he even ask her to give him water when he can command the water, come here? When you begin to examine even closer, you find that this was more than a conversation starter. As a matter of fact, it was even more profound than just seeking the woman's well-being. Why would Jesus say, give me a drink? When we study the story, often we focus on what Jesus did for the woman, but the hidden gospel is found in what Jesus asked the woman to do for him. Give me a drink. So I'd like you to join me now on the archaeological journey of discovering the hidden message of being poured out. And I want you to hold on. Because when we look at the relationship between Jesus and the Christian, often our greatest expectation is for Jesus to quench our thirst. But one of Jesus' greatest expectation is for us to quench his thirst. And when you grab and begin to see the phrase poured out in the Bible, it is going to become to you the red car that is impossible to miss. Now, when I saw it, Ron, I thought to myself, where in the Bible is poured out even 
mentioned. And I've discovered that those who don't pour themselves out on Jesus in service will eventually, in the end, he will pour himself out on them in wrath. The seven last plagues are poured out. Every one of them. And I ask myself the question, why? Because when we don't get to the place where we pour ourselves out on him, he pours himself out on us. Let's look at some of the examples in scripture as we begin to put together. This is an amazing journey. And as I was sitting at my computer putting this together, oftentimes, you know, I have many, many hours at the computer, sometimes going to bed late in the morning. But I was amazed to see how fast this message came together because I knew I said to my wife, whenever I sit down and pray, God pours into me. And so what you're hearing this morning is what he poured into me. And so I am in no pun intended pouring out what the Lord poured into me. Let's go to Genesis chapter 35. And we're going to look at an example of when Jacob wrestled with the Lord and the Lord appeared to Jacob to change his name from Jacob to Israel. What did Jacob do in response to not only his name change, but his determination not to let the Lord go? What did the Lord do? What did Jacob do in response to God blessing him, forgiving him, and changing his name? We find in Genesis chapter 35, verse 14, the Bible says, So Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he talked with God a pillar of stone and he poured a drink offering on it and he poured oil on it. And Jacob called the name of the place where God spoke with him. He called it Bethel, which is the house of God. Notice what happened in response to his gratitude for God, forgiving him, delivering him, and blessing him, Jacob poured out a drink offering. This is one of the first times you see in the Bible before the, before the Levitical services are even established, before the sons of Jacob are even born. The example in the life of this now changed man, Israel, he demonstrates out of gratitude for God, he pours out a drink offering on the stone. The stone is a representation of Christ. He pours out on the stone a drink offering, and he includes oil on it, anointing the Lord with a heart of gratitude. You also find in the Bible, in the daily temple services, the priests offered a drink offering twice a day. Now, I want you to focus as we lay the foundation on this term, term drink offering, because most of us don't even know much about the sacrificial system, all the services involved. There were various types of ordinances, various types of sacrifices for various types of purposes. But we're going to focus today for the purpose of the message on the drink offering. This was an offering that was performed twice a day in the temple. Go to Exodus chapter 29. And let's look together at verses 38 to 41. Here's what the Bible says. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar. This is instruction to the priest. Two lambs of the first year, day by day, how often? Continually. 
one lamb you shall offer in the morning. That's your time with Christ in the morning. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. Verse 40. Now the Bible tells us what to do. With the one lamb shall be one-tenth of an ephah of flour mixed with one-fourth of hen of pressed oil and one-fourth of a hen of wine as a drink offering. It goes on. Verse 41. And the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. You shall offer with it the grain offering and the drink offering as in the morning for a what? Sweet aroma an offering made by fire to the Lord. I want you to grab that. We have a drink offering. And then what happens as the, as the sacrifice is being anointed with this, this oil, there's a, an aroma that is rising from it. And the aroma, the result of that is a sweet aroma that becomes pleasing before the Lord. When it talks about the way that it was mixed, it was called a libation. What's the word that I just say? Libation, simply a big word meaning a mixture. It wasn't just wine. It wasn't just milk. It wasn't just oil. It was a mixture, a combination as prescribed by the temple services for that particular offering. But when you look at the drink offering through scripture, you find that the drink offering was a sign of gratitude for the blessings of the Lord upon the suppliant, the one who performed the drink offering, the one who came to offer the drink offering in behalf of his gratitude toward the Lord. And the Lord recognized that. And then there was something that God responded by doing for that person. Look at verse 42 of Exodus chapter 29. God responded because of their show of gratitude towards him. The Bible says this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet you to speak with you. When the sweet aroma of the offering rose before God, it was acceptable to God. And God responded by meeting with the children of Israel. When you begin to follow this term, the drink offering, you find also in scripture that it is a metaphor. What word did I just use? A metaphor or a symbolistic representation of the sacrifice that Jesus would pour out on the cross. A metaphor. And you're going to find that the word libation also applies to what happened on the cross. Look at Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. We see the drink offering once again illustrated in the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Luke chapter 22 and verse 20. The Bible says, Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the what? New covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So when you find here, Jesus is establishing the whole idea, this cup, what were, they do, what were they to do with the cup? They were to pour out of the cup, and that cup was to be a blessing to them. And the Lord is saying, what's in this cup that is being poured out is a symbol of the covenant that I'm going to make with you. And that covenant is ratified by the blood of Jesus. Notice what he said, which is shed. The word there, shed, means poured out for you and for me. 
You find again, when Jesus died on the cross, notice the libation talked about here. And the foundation is significant for what is coming. Look at John chapter 19 and verse 34. When Jesus died on the cross, what happened? You'll see the libation or the mixture again. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and immediately, look at the mixture, blood and water, what happened? Came out. When you look at what happened on the cross, the blood and water is a summary of the drink offering made on behalf of God through his son. For God so loved the world that he what? gave his only begotten son. Jesus was poured out on humanity so that we could in turn pour out on Jesus. And I I want you to grab that a moment. I'll say that again. The redemption of mankind is likened to a drink offering that Jesus poured out. He was poured out upon us by the father. Look at Psalm 22 verse 14. The Bible illustrates this beautifully. The demonstration of God in the willingness to pour out his son. Psalm 22 and verse 14. I am, what are the next two words? Poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It has melted within me. Notice the terminology again. Poured out. When Jesus gave his life, he was being poured out for our redemption. He was being poured out to redeem us. And brethren, when you see this, this is a two-sided example. When our hearts are filled with gratitude for what Jesus poured out on us, the response should be that we are willing to pour out on him. Because Jesus was a demonstration of God's love. God poured out his son for us. And the Holy Spirit poured the the son of God into us. I'm going to repeat that again. The father poured his son out for us. And the Holy Spirit poured Jesus into us. The Apostle Paul couldn't miss that picture. Look at Romans 5 and verse 5. Now, hope does not disappoint. When you have hope, you have everything you need. Because the love of God has been what? Poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And what did that mean? Look at verse 8. But God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, what happened, friends? Christ died for us. God poured out his son for us. The Holy Spirit poured the son of God into us. A libation. The blood and the water, a libation. The gift poured out by the Father, poured in by the Holy Spirit. So far, there's a third piece missing. The first piece, the Lord poured out his Son. The second piece, the Holy Spirit poured Jesus in. But there's a third part that you're going to see in just a moment. Praise God today 
that the Lord was willing to pour out Jesus to redeem us. Can you say amen? But because the death of Jesus brought the ceremonial system to its end, there are people that write me questions and say today, why is it that the Adventist church don't observe feasts and holy days and all these festivals? Well, the answer is given clearly in Colossians chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. And when we look at that, we'll see that the services accomplished all their purposes. But when Jesus came as the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world to be poured out as a drink offering, all those symbols came to their fulfillment in the life of Christ. The candles, Jesus, the light of the world. The table of showbread, Jesus, the bread of life. The label where the priest washed his hands, Jesus, the water of life. The altar of burnt offerings symbolizing the cross where Jesus would give his life for us, sacrifice his life for us. The high priest, Jesus is now our high priest. So these offerings, these festivals, these feasts didn't have to be kept any longer. That's why the apostle Paul said what he did in Colossians 2 verse 16 and 17. And I want you to notice as you read this, you're going to see a key word that connects us back to the drink offering. Here it is. Colossians chapter 2 verse 16 and verse 17. Since Jesus did away with the system, he said, so let no one judge you in food or in, what's the next word? Drink. That's the drink offering. Regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. Notice the small s. These were ceremonial Sabbaths. The seventh month Sabbath. The eighth day Sabbath. The first day Sabbath. The seven year Sabbath. These were cycled Sabbaths that were connected to the ceremonial system. These had nothing to do with the weekly Sabbath blessed at the end of creation week. But he said, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths. And look at verse 17. Which are a what? Shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. Watch the transition. I want you to not miss it. So instead of bringing lambs and bulls and goats to the Lord, what kind of sacrifice should we bring to the Lord today? And you're going to see in this the illustration of being poured out. What then, since the ceremonial system is done, since we don't, we don't take lambs and bulls and goats and sacrifice them any longer, what do we bring to the Lord? Hear the words of the Apostle Paul. Romans 12 and verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your what? Bodies, a living sacrifice. How? Holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. The NIV says, which is your spiritual act of worship. Let me pause for a moment. I'm taking my time to work on this message that I'm going to preach later on. It's called the most expensive temple ever built. And you're going to see something that you may not have seen in that light before. You'll understand the content, but what the Lord revealed to me comes from the foundation of this text that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. In the temple services, all the sacrifices were put to death. But the Lord is saying, I don't want to take your life. 
I want you to give your life. You can put something to death, but when you read Galatians 2.20, I'm not telling you to turn there, look at how Paul wraps this together. First of all, give your life as a living sacrifice. If you give your life as a living sacrifice, then you understand Galatians 2.20. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives where? In me. So your life doesn't belong to you. Anything that you sacrifice and give to the Lord is no longer yours. The living sacrifice dedicated to the Lord. When that sacrifice was killed... That lamb didn't get up and walk back home. That bull didn't get up and walk. That pigeon didn't get up and fly. That was the end of its life. What is, what is the Bible saying? When we give our lives to the Lord and we determine that our lives are going to be a living sacrifice, this may be frightening, but it's, but it's revolutionary. And you'll see why in a moment. Somebody might say, and I've heard a lot of people say, what do I have to give up to join your church? And I say, everything. And they say, excuse me? Like, do I have to stop? And they start going down a list as if they have something that God wants. They start going, well, uh, what about? And they go down the list almost to see, is there something that I can still hold on to and no longer live. Can I make a point right here? People that are deceased don't need anything. When the Christian comes to the point where he or she gives his or her life to the Lord as a living sacrifice, your complete future is orchestrated, supplied, provided for and fulfilled by the Lord. Said another way, if I have the Lord on my side, who else do I need? Said another way, if I have the Lord, I have everybody I need. And I have everything I need because God has a whole lot more than anybody else. Can you say amen? So Paul is talking about when he said, give your life as a living sacrifice, what Paul meant is a life that is poured out to Jesus is a life of continual service. But the Lord wasn't asking the woman to serve him. He was saying, give me a drink. Follow me carefully. I told you in Sabbath school, I'm going to sneak up on you. Didn't I say that? The ministry of the Apostle Paul, one of the reasons why we admire him so much is we admire him not for what he received, but we admire Paul for what he gave. If the Apostle Paul lived today, I wonder how some of our church members would, would treat him. Let's just consider that for a moment. Let's just say about a year and a half ago, Paul was still involved in consenting to the life of Christians, killing Christians. He was still involved in persecuting the church, chasing Christians from one location to the other, consenting for the stoning of Stephen. Paul was a rebel. Many people died under his watch. But he met the Lord. He had a Damascus Road experience where the Lord blinded him so that he can see. 
Then he opened his eyes, and Paul, from the moment he opened his eyes and saw the Lord, Paul poured out his life. So it did not matter. Have you read the record of all the things he went through? When the Bible says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, don't stop, don't stop on that verse. Read the verses before that. I know how to have much, how to be without anything. I know how to have hardship and how to have good times. I've been whipped, thrown in prison, left for dead, bitten by serpents, persecuted, put in prison. I mean, Paul's life was one where he didn't really care what happened to him because he knew. Oh, I want to say this. He knew that once you put your life in the Lord's hands, it doesn't matter what you go through. God promises that he's going to be with you in it and carry you through it. But what did Paul say in relationship to the kind of life he lived? Notice Philippians chapter 2 and verse 17. What did the apostle Paul say? And I'm still laying foundation. He said, yes. And if I am being what? Poured out as a what? Drink offering. Notice he brought these two Old Testament symbols together. Jacob poured out on the rock. The priest poured out morning and evening on the sacrifice. Paul poured out his life as a drink offering. He's using Old Testament symbolism. And he continues by saying, poured out as a drink offering on the sacrifice and service of your faith. Paul's life was a continual pouring out, a continual sacrifice, a continual sacrifice of service for those around him. And then he says, and I am glad and I rejoice with you all. Why would he say that? Oh, man. My wife and I were talking about this, even this morning. Do you know... This is not a question requiring an answer, but this is the point in the form of a question. Do you know that when you put your life in the Lord's hands, he can more than take care of you? Now, I'm going to challenge that in just a moment because you all agree. You see, Paul was one of those that understood in many ways what it really means to lay it all on the altar of sacrifice. He held back nothing. He didn't care what people said. He wasn't rude. He was not offensive. He simply did what the Lord had called him to do, and he was willing to pour out and to be poured out and to be poured out because he loved the Lord so much for what the Lord had given to him. Don't forget why did Paul do that? Because a drink offering is an offering of gratitude for what the Lord has done for someone. So if the Lord is really, really blessing your life, there should be no hesitancy on our part to say, Lord, if I look at my life and all the things you've done for me, there should be no hesitancy in my life to be willing to be poured out for the blessing of Jesus. Notice what I didn't say. I didn't say to be poured out for the service of Jesus. I said to be poured out as a blessing to Jesus. And you'll see what I mean in just a moment. When Paul talked about the drink offering and the sacrificial system and being poured out, it was a direct correlation to Numbers chapter 15. Let's look at this and you're going to see something else. 
you're going to see something else. In Numbers chapter 15, let's turn together with, to verse 6 and 7. Because there's something that happened when the wine was poured on the burnt sacrifice that this illustrates in Numbers chapter 15, verse 6 and verse 7. Don't forget the sermon title is what? Say it again. Poured out. Here it is. Speaking about the different sacrifices, I just jumped right to verse 6 and 7. Or for a ram, or for a ram, you shall prepare as a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with one-third of a hen of oil. There is a libation. And as a drink offering, you shall offer one-third of a hen of wine as a what? Sweet aroma to the Lord. I said this earlier, but it fits again here. When the libation was poured out on the sacrifice, first you heard, just like any liquid being poured on anything that's hot. And what happened? A cloud arose, which was in your kitchen, smoke. But at the temple services, a smoke that had a sweet scent based on the mixture of the oil and the wine. The oil and the wine symbols in the New Testament of the work of the Holy Spirit. The oil is symbol directly of the Holy Spirit. The wine is symbol of the new light being poured into these wine skins. But what happened? It produced a sweet aroma. It produced what, friends? A sweet aroma. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 to 16. I'm getting tickled because when I finish laying the foundation, it's going to explode. You're going to see what we're laying the foundation about. What I'm showing you is Old Testament, the actual services, and then the reflection of those Old Testament services in the life of the Apostle Paul throughout his ministry. And he used symbolism continually to point to the significance of what those services were, were established for. They were established to show us two things. The sacrifice that Jesus was make, would make in our behalf and the sacrifice that we should make in his behalf. But often we look for the sacrifice that Jesus made in our behalf. Very few times we look to be a sacrifice to make in Jesus' behalf. Look at 2 Corinthians 2, verse 14 to 16. He said, Now thanks be to God who always, how often, friends? Always leads us in triumph in Christ. And through us, you're going to see it, diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Why? When we are being poured out on the man Christ Jesus, there's a fragrance. It's going to continue. Verse 15, for we are to God, for we are to God, the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are what? Perishing. How? Verse 16, to the one we are the, say it together, aroma of death leading to death, and to the other, the aroma of life leading to life. And then Paul asks, and who is sufficient for these things? 
In other words, he says, how is that possible? Without the presence of Christ in our lives, we couldn't be life to someone or death to anyone. What is Paul saying? The Apostle Paul was saying that when we are poured out, when Christ is pouring out of us, one crowd is going to see us as our words in our life as death to them. But those who are with Christ is going to see our lives as life to them. What is he saying? The Christian is an offense on one side and a blessing on the other. Let me make it very practical. Some of you have family members that really don't like to be around you. Some of you have family members that don't, that don't invite you to certain functions because it's just not, not going to be what it wants to be if you're there. I've known of parties that have been held and I've heard people say, did you get an invitation? And I said, no. And I said, but I know why. Because what's going to be taking place there, they know I wouldn't approve of it. And if I walked in, I would be a fence to those who are doing what would not be a blessing to God. In other words, aroma of death leading to death. What is Paul saying? When our lives are dedicated to God, we've got to allow our sacrifice to be what the Lord intends for it to be. Leave the results to him. On one side, those who want to be. On the other side, those who don't want to be. But let me take it to the next level. Going back to the woman. There are only two kinds of Christians. How many kinds did I say? Two. Those that live a life of giving and those that live a life of receiving. I've laid the foundation. Now we're going to fry the egg. Christianity today is largely comprised of Christians that are waiting to receive. That's why the prosperity gospel is so magnetic. If I said that we were going to do a miracle service and God will provide your house, your car, give you money, this place would be jam-packed. That's why miracle service in the prosperity gospel, you got 15,000, 10,000, 20,000 people running after the prosperity gospel because the prosperity gospel has overshadowed the reciprocal gospel. Now, now I'm going to break it open for you. We talked about being poured out. The prosperity gospel is magnetic. Why? Because it plays into the selfish nature of humanity. What can he do for me? That's why Jesus had big crowds, because they heard that Jesus can turn loaves and fishes into such a large meal that thousands could be fed. And many that followed Jesus didn't follow him to give their lives to him. They followed Jesus because Jesus has some good food. Can you imagine how that must have tasted? Now, let me just amplify something for a moment. I have no evidence on this, but I, but I would suffice it to say that Jesus can make a meal taste better than any of the women that we've ever met. Honey, I'm sorry. But I'm sure that when Jesus gave that meal, I'm sure they didn't say, what is this? Is this Vegilinks? Is this Wham? What is this? Is this chocolates? 
The people ate and they were full. Whatever the Lord touches is not only going to be good, but it's going to be filling. But that was a symbol of the prosperity gospel of that day. People followed Jesus because of what he was willing to do for them. But Jesus' proposition to woman, Jesus propositioned the woman with the question, give me a drink. Are you ready for it? The prosperity gospel is based on waiting for Jesus to give us something. But the reciprocal gospel is Jesus waiting for us to give him something. That's why these little examples in the scriptures, like the widow with two mites, was given more focal, more focus, more attention than the Pharisees that had given a whole lot. Why was she given such a focus? Because she did what? She gave everything she had. She poured out everything on Christ. But the Pharisees may, may have given large checks or large amounts but if, you're, if, but if you're a multimillionaire, what's a $1,000 check on Sabbath morning? We get crazy, but that's like gum money for millionaires. Come on, help me out. So we see these large amounts, but the Lord is saying, that check means so much less than that widow who's on a fixed income. Because there are those that are willing to give the little they have. While those with a whole lot are waiting for the Lord, that's why it sickens me when I hear these prosperity preachers. You know, your ship is coming in. This weekend, God is going to... And it just... I want to... I listen to get myself angry. So that later on I can find out what they're saying so that I can redirect and help people understand. Don't follow the Lord for what He can do for you. Follow the Lord for what you are willing to do for Him. Who said that? Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. Old people, John F. Kennedy. Where did he get that from? The scriptures. He simply put America in the place of what Jesus was asking the woman to do for him. How do I know that the reciprocal gospel is illustrated in scripture? Look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 7. It's there. When you look at the reciprocal gospel, you begin to see why Jesus put such focus on those who were willing to do what the crowd was not willing to do. Look at Matthew chapter 26 and verse 7. The reciprocal gospel, and you'll find out why this fits into the term reciprocal. That means what you do will come back. The woman, the Bible says, speaking about the woman, this is the same Mary that was caught in adultery, the same woman that had seven demons cast out of her life at different times, the same woman that the Bible says, when, when the gospel is preached, her name will always be mentioned with it. Why not Peter, James, John, Thomas, Bartholomew? Why not them? Here's the reason why. Matthew 26, verse 7. A woman came to him having an alabaster box or alabaster flax of what? Very costly, fragrant oil. And what does she do? And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. If you know the rest of the story, you see that those people that were at the, when they smelled the fragrance, 
When they smell the fragrance, when they smell the aroma, when they smell the what? What are we? What are we? A sweet aroma. This woman who was forgiven decided to give the Lord the best. Where she got this from, the Bible doesn't say, but it was very costly. And those whose motives were just financial said, we could have sold that for this amount of money. But she gave the Lord her best. She gave the Lord her what? Her best. Now let's hold on to that because you're going to see the reciprocal gospel means the offering of gratitude, the drink offering, the drink offering, the pouring out in the life of Jacob, in the life of the priests, in the life of the daily sacrifices, in the book of Numbers, all these drink offerings were a symbol of our gratitude to God. So we were willing to pour out to bless the Lord, oh my soul, and all that is within me. Let's look at another one. And this is going to blow your hair. Hold your hair. If you got on a wig, hold on to it. Here it is. Tape it down. Here we go. You're going to see something powerfully in Luke chapter 6. Look at this. The reciprocal gospel begins with us. Let me say this as you're turning there. We initiate the blessing that we receive. Now look up a brief moment. Look up. I'm going to pause so I can say this right. A lot of times we think that the Lord says, this is what they need. This is what I'm going to give them. And we know he shall supply all of our need. But what I want to show you is something even more deep than that. We initiate the blessing that we receive. Follow me carefully. So the Lord is saying, okay, I know what you're praying for. But if I compare what you're praying for me to do for you compared to what you did for me, it doesn't match. Let's go and put this into an employer-employee situation. You worked two hours this week and you want a full check? What kind of company do you think we're running? Revelation 22, verse 12 Behold, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according as his work shall be. People ask God, pray all week long, expecting God to bless them, to take care of my bills, to take care of this and that, provide me this and that, whatever it may be. You, put the, you fill the categories in. They're asking God to do so much for them, but the question is, what are they willing to do for him? Look at the reciprocal blessing. It begins, we initiate the blessing that we receive. I got scripture for that. Here we go. Luke 6, verse 38. Let's say it together. Are you ready? Let's put some oomph into this. Together. Here we go. Give, and it will be given to you. Notice, let's say it one more time. Give, that's you, and it will be given. That's the reciprocation. And it will be given to you. How? Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into what? Your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. That is the reciprocal blessing. 
Meaning, don't expect me to give you a measure that is completely out of harmony with, with what you gave me. Said another way, if I give my neighbor a teaspoon of salt, don't go a week later and ask for a box of salt. They say, last week I asked you for a box, you gave me a teaspoon, here's your teaspoon back. The same measure that you use, it will, it will be measured back to you again. And by the way, if you want to add something even more than that, let's say that this reciprocal gospel is a law that cannot be broken. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. Why? Because the measure that you used, it will be measured back to you again. In other words, Lord, I've given you this. The Lord says, I can trust you with this. We often wait for God to bless us abundantly, but we are so unwilling to bless God sparingly. Didn't the Bible say, he who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly? But he who sows bountifully will reap bountifully. That's why God loves a what? Cheerful giver. And by the way, Money fits into this, but I'm not talking about money. Because, because stewardship is time, talent, testimony, and treasure. So, some people, it's easier to give money than to give you time. We might say, we'd like you to volunteer for X amount of hours. They say, well, no, how much can I donate for the volunteer? And they'll sit home and try to finish the gospel with a remote control. But now, one of the greatest examples of the reciprocal gospel is found in 1 Kings chapter 17. Come on, go with me. Don't slow me down. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10 to 12. It is the great and wonderful endearing story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. Some of you know it, but let's, let's look at the drink offering. Let's look for a couple of things. Let's look for what she was willing to do and what God did. Okay, let's watch this. 1 Kings chapter 17, verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. That's Elijah went. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering, what was she gathering? Sticks. And he called her and said, look at what he said. This sounds just like what Jesus did. Bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Jesus said the same thing to the woman he met. Same principle. See, what you find, if, if you look at the New Testament, you find these examples littered throughout the Old Testament. Elijah, a symbol of Christ, saying to the woman in the Old Testament, the same thing Jesus said to the woman in the New Testament. Give me a little water in a cup that I may drink. Look at the next verse. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, look at this, please bring me. What are you willing to do for me? Bring me some water, but also bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. Watch this. Before he was willing to tell her what he was going to do for her, he wanted to see what she wanted to do for him. You following me? If you follow and say amen. I want you to notice the reciprocal principle. Jesus did the same thing. Before he freed her, he said, what are you willing to give me? Before Elijah was willing to unfold the blessing, he said, let me test her. Are you willing to bring me some water? Are you willing to bring me some bread? Let's keep going. He said, verse 12. So she said, 
as the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin. And a little, what else? And a little oil in a jar. I'm about to jump off the pulpit. Just hold on. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Oh, man. Okay. All right. Hold on. Here I go. This is a picture of the majority of Christianity. According to her present circumstances, Donald, she says, I got enough oil and enough flour to make me one cake. We're going to eat and we're going to die. So many Christians share the same mindset of this woman because she says, I only have a little. I only have a little. I only have a handful. I got to pause to say it right. So many Christians think that God does not require the little that they have. So what do they do? They hold on to their little. I only got $5. I can't give this to the Lord. They hold on to their little. They eat it. And they die. I can't afford to return my tithe and offering this week because I only have enough left for me to just provide my needs and die. So what happens is Christians live in this miserable existence when what they don't realize is the little they have is not a statement of the little that they have is not their inventory, it is their test. Somebody got it. The little bit of oil she had was not her inventory. The little bit of meal she had, Ron, was not her inventory. That's what she saw. But I wish somebody would see beyond what you see and start looking at God rather than looking at your inventory. Look at verse 13. You're going to see the reciprocation. It's, it's going to get you. It's going to get you. I'm sorry, but it's going to get you. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, he could have said to her, I'm sorry for bothering you. I didn't know you had so little. I'll try to find food someplace else. Didn't mean to interrupt your day. But Elijah got bold. He said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said. Oh, but, 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 but make me a small cake from it first. She could have said, excuse me. And who are you? Mr. Prophet. Did you not just hear me tell you I have enough for me and my son and we're going to eat this and die? What did he say? First. 
Sorry, Angela, I got, I got to put it right here. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And come on, say it. All these things shall be added to you. The reciprocal gospel says, I want to see what you're willing to do first. If you're willing to do this, then I'm going to show you what you don't see. So he said, make me a small cake first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. She's probably thinking, this guy is really not listening to me. Because I don't have enough, but just for me and him. How much, and how much do you weigh? How much food do you require? I told you, I have just enough for me and my son. This is our last meal. And you show up out of nowhere and tell me to give it to you first. That's what God does. He shows up in the middle of your lack and says, stop looking at your inventory and start looking at the test. Because look at verse 14. So he told her what to do. And watch God. Watch God. So verse 13. And he said, and afterward, make some for yourself and your son. Just read verse 13. But look at verse 14 now. The Bible says, for thus says the Lord God of Israel. Now he puts the authority behind it. I don't know how many church members I've said, Do you know, brother, you said you can't afford to return tithe. Let me say to you, in the midst of your lack, you can't afford not to. You can't afford not to. But where am I going to get money from? Don't ask me, ask God. He might have some resources. I mean, there's a chance that God owns something. Let me not get facetious here. There's a chance that outside of your inventory, God might have some spare change. I mean, just cattle on a thousand hills. You count your cattle by heads. God counts his cattle by hills. Come on, say amen, somebody. He said, the gold and silver is mine. He said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't even tell you. But sometimes he comes to you and says, Ramona, what do you have? Give it to me. So look at the, look at the story. It's going to get ridiculous. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour, oh, I wish you were listening to me today, shall not be used up. You think you have, you think you have just a little bit of talent? You think you have just a little bit of ability to serve God? You think that the people that really are talented are required of God to use that talent, but your little talent is not required? Don't fool yourself. God goes after those that have little, because little is much when God is in it. He said, if you give it to me, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jaw of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. And when you read the story, she had enough food for the rest of her life. Verse 15. So she went away. And this is what God is saying to us. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah. And she and he and her household ate for how long? Many days. Look at God. Verse 16. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry 
Why? According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke to Elijah. Oh, can I say it today? If we would only do according to the word of the Lord, if we would only do, fear is a liar. Fear says to you now, you know you cannot afford to do this or that. Some of you have houses that you don't even know how you got it. Some of you have cars that you don't even know how it's still running. Some of you are not in the hospital yet, and you wonder why in this COVID environment you have not been put on oxygen yet, and you're not even sick yet. Some of you got sick, and God brought you through it. Amen, somebody. But here's the principle. If we would simply do according to the word of the Lord, God will do according to his word. Today, many Christians don't experience what it means to give God first. That's why they exist in a life of lack. Last, this morning, actually, my wife and I were sitting down, and we are not wealthy. We, we've never owned a home. We've never had a house that we have a deed on it. We've moved a lot. You know, if we get one, praise God, I'd love to give my wife a house. But if not, God's building both of us a house. But what I, want you to see, what I want you to see is the little that we have is not our inventory. It is our test. I'll say that one more time. The little that you have, Tracy, is not your inventory. It's your test. So here it is. Until we realize that what we have belongs to God, we'll never appreciate that what God has belongs to us. I know that's so deep. You just had to kind of. On your way home, I'll hear you shouting in your car. Because you got to let your head wrap around that. Until you realize that what you have belongs to God, you would never experience that what he has belongs to you. How do I know that? Malachi 3. Malachi 3. I hope you're ready for it because it's going to catch you when you didn't see it. Malachi 3, verse 10. Look at this. It's a financial text, but it's far broader than that. Look at the second word. What is the second word? Bring all. Bring big. What? Bring small. Bring what, friends? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now on this, says the Lord of hosts. Watch the reciprocal thing. If you do this, Here's what God, he wants to see what you are willing to do first. This blessing doesn't come. God doesn't say, I'll open the windows and then you bring all the tithes. Hey, oh, no, 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 no. You bring what belongs to me and I'll show you what I have. Have you ever seen heaven's window? Heaven's got some big windows. Come on, somebody say amen. Heaven's got some huge windows. I can tell you, God poured some vehicles through those windows for us. I would give you some stories that make you upset. But I don't really care because the redeemed of the Lord ought to say so. Why is it that some people just don't get that? Because they don't get the first part. If you do your part, here's the promise. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And he says, and prove me now in this. Try me. I like, this. I like the way he said, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour you out of such a blessing that there will together not be room enough to receive it. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? 
If you believe that, I want to see that. Now, God's going to test you. You just said you believe that. But when I say it again, your inventory, your possessions, what you have is not your inventory. It's your test. The rich young ruler is evidence that he didn't believe that. He was rich and he was young. There's nothing worse than a young, rich person. They think that Facebook will never have their name as deceased. But that rich young ruler had great possessions. And the Lord said to him, give me what you have. Give it all to the poor. And Peter said to him, Lord, that's hard. That was tough. Who then can be saved? What I love about that story is the Lord didn't say to the rich young ruler, I'll make you richer than you have. I'll make you richer than you've ever been if you give me what you have. No, the Lord says, give everything you have away. And Peter said, Lord, who then can be saved? And here's what the Lord said to Peter. If he, had only given, if he had only given away everything, grab this. I would have given him a hundred times more in this life and in the world to come eternal life. Can anybody beat that? I'm, I'm testify to that. Can we testify to that, honey? I can testify to that. In the middle of a prayer, the door got, somebody knocked on the door of, my, of our home. While I'm praying, Lord, provide the needs we have. Somebody's, wait, wait, I'm praying. In the midst of my prayer, I had to cut my prayer short because before I started praying, the Lord sent that person an hour and a half earlier. The Lord spoke to me this morning and said, the pastor, you have a need. I drove over the mountain from that town, 35 miles away on the treacherous roads, because when I had my devotions this morning, the Lord said, you have a need, and here it is. Thank you, Karen. Before you call. It's not a financial sermon, but God has promised. You see, the reciprocal gospel is when we put God first, we will we'll find that we will never lack because the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 4.19, And my God shall do what? Supply all your need according to his riches and glory. You see, Jesus promised. And when Jesus promises, his promise has no expiration date. It's not for 15 minutes. You know, you go to the store and they say, Now this is an offer that is one more day. I've never gotten on my knees and heard the Lord said, I'm sorry that the offer expired yesterday. Amen, somebody. God don't have offers that expire. Come on, can I get a praise the Lord out of this crowd? God doesn't have any expiration dates on his offers. David the psalmist said it this way, Psalm 37, verse 25. He says, I have been young, and now I'm old. That's why I'm trying to get a bed to show you guys what you're doing to me. And now I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. Can we say amen to that? David says, I was young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor their seed begging for bread. Can I say something? God don't make beggars. We do. That's why David, when he looked at what God did for him, he said in Psalm 116, verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits? towards me as I close one of my favorite devotions and I want to invite 
Danielle to come up. Sorry, Addie to come up. All of them, just all come up. This quotation really took me back. One of my favorite writers, Oswald Chambers, the devotional January 18th in the book, My Utmost Force Highest. He said, beware of anything that competes with your loyalty to Jesus. The greatest competition or the greatest competitor of true devotion to Jesus is the service we do for him. It is easier, get this now, it is easier to serve than to pour out our lives completely for him. It's easier to say, I'm doing this instead of pouring out my life. So the Christian that thinks that he or, or she is called to do something for the Lord has missed this message altogether. We are not called to do something for the Lord. We are called to pour out our lives on him. That's why at the end of Paul's life, here's what he said. Paul made it very clear. When the Lord called the woman, he said, give me something to drink. But notice what Paul said. Okay, I didn't have the scripture, but let me read it to you. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6 and 8. Paul says, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering at the end of his life. My departure is, is at hand. I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I've kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, but not to me only, but to all those who love my appearing. What happened? What happened? The Apostle Paul poured out his life on Christ and the life of the Apostle Paul was poured out on us. You see, when, the, when Jesus came to the woman at the well and said these words, give me a drink, what happened? He confronted her not to reveal what he was going to do for her, but to see what she was willing to do for him. And I want you to get these six points as I close. The woman came to the well to satisfy her thirst. Jesus came to her to satisfy his thirst. How many of you come to church to satisfy your thirst rather than to satisfy the thirst of Christ? Jesus did not come to satisfy our thirst. He came to awaken our thirst. Jesus is not asking us to awaken his thirst. He wants us to satisfy his thirst. So, before we begin to think that we are thirsting for Jesus, the beauty of the gospel is before we thirst for Jesus, Jesus is thirsting for us. My brother, my sister, today, are you willing, is my question, are you willing to be poured out on Christ? Now, why is that question significant? Because if you say yes, God is going to do in your life the unimaginable. He did it for the woman. He did it for Paul. He did it for Elijah and all those that followed him. He did the unimaginable. Why? 
because they were willing to pour into him first that he could pour through them into us. Today, if it's your desire to be poured out for Christ, would you stand with me today? He's not coming to quench your thirst. He's coming asking you to satisfy his. Are we willing to give all to Christ? If in fact you want to do that, it's going to take time. And as we sing the stanza of this song today, I want to sing just one stanza today. Because giving your all to Christ is going to take time in your life. But you'll find that that time is well spent. When my wife and I left Florida to come to California, <laughs> people said to us, we're crazy. They say, you don't know where you're going. You don't know what job you're going to have. You don't know what kind of money you're going to make. You don't know where you're going to live. We decided to pour out everything into the Lord, and here we are today. 35 years later, God's been pouring into us because we were willing to be radical for God and be poured out for Christ. Today, as we sing this stanza, take time to be holy. Terry, would you lead the stanza for us? Take time to be holy. Speak oft with thy Lord. Abide in him always and feed on his word. Make friends of God's Why did I choose that song? I had a little different spin on his blessing to seek. Instead of us seeking his blessing, I wanted us to be seeking to bless him. That's why I chose that verse. His blessing is what I want to seek. I want to bless him. Anybody else? Yes. I want to bless him. I want to be able to say, Lord, I want to be that drink offering to you. I want to pour out my life into your life and then watch you pour into me and through me to bless others. Is that your desire today? Yeah. Father in heaven, we, we bless your holy name. But you have challenged us to give you something. Not you give us something. That's easy. You've been doing that all of our lives. Providing all of our needs. We've been praying, Father, I need this. I need that. Do this for me. Do that for me. Help me here and help me there. But you've come to us with a simple, simple request. Give me to drink first. And we have seen you supply above and beyond our imagination. So, Lord, help us not to seek just to serve you. Help us not to, just to seek to do something for you, but to be that drink offering poured out upon the life of one who sacrificed everything for us. And then and only then can our lives become a sweet-smelling savor to the world around us. Teach us what it means, Father, to be poured out. Teach us what it means 
to give our all that you may be glorified. I pray in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.